Well, as we uh, join our hearts together, let's read our text for today. We find it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And I invite you to join with me out loud as we uh, sing, or sing, as we say, speak uh, the scriptures here uh, together uh, as our text for today. So verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory." Father, we love your word. We're so thankful that you've given to us your written word. In it, we find proclamation of what was once your spoken word through the prophets. We find testimony of the living word, Jesus, your son, who came to dwell among us. And so, Father, we approach your word today with great humility, needing and asking that your Holy Spirit direct us and be our true teacher as we understand what you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when I say the word church, what comes to mind? How would you define it? Uh, Do you have positive or negative feelings? Do you think about a facility or a group of people? What teaching or experiences have shaped what you think when you hear the word church? Can you go back to childhood memories, or is this idea of church something that is a newer experience for you? The reality is that although there may be some similarities among us, right, we all have very different experiences that are wrapped up in this word church. For some of you, the experience with the church has been incredibly positive. For others, you're honestly maybe in the church recovery program. In light of all this, I believe our text today provides a helpful answer to the question, what is the church? I'm sure you're familiar with quotes and memes and reels and so on that speak to the fact that one thing we can be certain of in life in general is change. Before my parents died and went to be with Jesus, one of the things I loved most once in a while was to sit with them and just talk with them about the the, what they witnessed as change in their life from childhood till their age of seventy and so on. And and it was amazing for me to hear of all that they experienced as change in our culture throughout that time. My one thing I remember vividly, not only hearing my dad talk about, but witnessing as well as a young child, was uh, the fact that he sold insurance for 30 years. And uh, when I watched him journey through the change from paper to computers, right? And uh, I found it fascinating to listen to him and talk about that and, and to witness the fact that he liked the benefits of the computer, right? Made some things easier, but he didn't like the process of learning it. So, the process of change. Now, the church is not exempt from change. I don't want to take the time today to recount specifics of change in the church over the years, but let's just say, even for one point, like if you were to have fallen asleep in the year 1900 and woken up in the year 2000, what kind of change, right? You probably would have been astounded by the change you would have 
seen in the church. And for all intents and purposes, if you would have fell asleep in the year 2000 and woken up in 2023, right, uh, probably would have been astounded as well. We might be quick to be critical of these changes, but in fact, some of the changes have been very good. So I think we all know that change is inevitable, not only in culture, but also in the church. And some of you are thinking of some very specific examples right now in your head, maybe some positive, maybe some not so positive in your opinion. But here's the reality is that no time ever, right, or will there ever be a perfect time in the age of the church? It's the reality. And maybe this is a simple reminder of what some of you need today, right, to help you reshape your expectations of the church. But there, the, the, the church is, is, will never be perfect in the age of the church. Change will always be part of what takes place within the church. Now that I've already made some of you very nervous by talking about change, let's get into defining the church as Paul describes it. And these are five true things, right? Five things true of the church that, that don't change, right? Five things true of the church regardless of time and place or people. Five things that don't change about the church. Now, I want to start in the middle of our text in verse 15, and then kind of branch outward from there. I want to begin with the statement that Paul makes. He says, you know how you, uh, so I'm writing to you so that you uh, know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The first thing true of the church is that the church is a people belonging to God. That's true of the church. Regardless of place or people or time, the church has always been and will always be a people belonging to God. The word church itself in the Greek, ekklesia, is a compound word out of the word ek, which means out, and kaleo, which means to call or to name, to call out, to name. That's the church. We see this throughout the scripture and other places, like in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter explains proclaims and explains this calling out, right? Those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is a people belonging to God. Now, when a child is born, right, anticipation of that birth, a mother and father will spend a lot of time thinking through what they will name their child, right? Because this child belongs to them. This is something of them. And so what's the importance? What's the significance of that name? And so a mother and father will take, think long and hard about that. And, and this, thinking about the church, the ones called out by God, named by God, the ecclesia. Ecclesia is not only a naming, it is also a summoning. Think of the dinner bell, right? When it's dinner time, kids are out playing in the yard. What do you do? You yell at the back door. You know, for us, it was Reese Hudson, time for dinner, right? We're naming that and we're calling them to, to summoning them to the dinner table because it's time for dinner. That's kind of what this word ecclesia is wrapped in. It's this naming by God because there's, there's something significant in the naming and there's this summoning together. There's this gathering of those who have been named. And therefore, we are encouraged in Hebrews chapter 10 to let us consider how we stir up or how we motivate one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is what we are called to as the church, not only that God names us, but that God gathers us as those who are the church of the living God. We belong to God, the living God. Our God is alive, amen? Jesus is alive. That is the distinctive truth of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much so, the Bible tells us that without the resurrection, our faith is worthless, right? We are people of the living God. Paul, when he was in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, testified this when he was speaking before the the Athenian council there. He says this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I mean, Paul's giving us this idea, this image of kind of like this is a museum, right? I'm I'm here, and and, and he says, "I, I see the images that you worship, and and you got this idol to this, and this idol representing this, and this idol representing this. And we may not have a, a literal idol sitting in our house, but we need to also acknowledge like we, we struggle with idol worship in our lives, right? There's things that we devote ourselves to other than Christ. And Paul's simply saying, like, man, this is like a museum. Like, I'm walking along. And then he, he goes on to say, I find also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And Paul launched it. Read Acts 17 this afternoon, right, when you have time. It's a wonderful chapter. Paul goes into, like, describing God is not one who needs us, right? He's not one that requires the service of, of humanity like these idols do, right? In fact, God is the one who gives all men, all people, life and breath and everything, he says. He is the giver and the sustainer of all life. He is the living God, and our source of eternal life is this God, this God who, as children of His, named Father, right? Through the work, our, our eternal life is through the Father and the, through the work of the Son, empowered by the Spirit of God. This is distinctive about the church, people of the living God. I love this emphasis when I was... Uh, at Moody Bible Institute and my training as in pastoral ministry years ago and still believe it to be true, one of the things that they taught us was that the church is an organism, not an organization. Believe that to be true. Now, a church has organizational properties, if you will, right? When you gather people together, it, God is a God of order and design. And so, yes, there's some organizational structure to the local church. But ultimately, friend, listen, we as the people of the living God, we are an organism. There's something distinctive, but we have life in the Spirit of God. In other words, we are to think that when you hear the word church, you're not just to think about any other organization. You're to think about organism. There's, there's a life-giving presence of the Spirit of God among us. And therefore, we're different and distinct. Perhaps a way to summarize it together, if you will, is that the church is an organized organism. Okay? It is distinct. We are the church of the living God, the ones called by name, the ones whom He has called out to be his own, and we're grateful for it. Amen? So the church is a people belonging to God. Second of all, the church is a people of transformation. This is a truth 
for any culture, any person of any time. The church is a people of transformation. We are in process of growing to be like Christ. This is the way Paul said it. I'm writing to you so that you may know how one ought to behave. Not that you may know certain truths, right, or, or be able to quote certain things that he was teaching, but that you may know how one ought to behave. Now, we all know this, that knowledge does not equal action, right? You know that? You, just because you know something doesn't mean you necessarily act upon it. We do this all the time with things we know, whether it's exercise or diet or making our doctor visits or, you know, other things in life. You know what the speed limit is, but at times you choose not to. Like, so knowledge does not always fulfill itself in action. And that's what Paul's addressing here. And we as the church need to know that our commitment to and our knowledge of the Bible does not equal conformity to the Bible. Just because we can quote Bible verses does not mean that our life is being lived in accordance with our knowledge of the Word. Paul is emphasizing here, listen, as the church of the living God, you are not only to know things, but it's knowledge that leads to transformation, that leads to behavior, that leads to life change. So salvation is not only about being saved from something. Sometimes we talk of the gospel as though it's just being saved from hell, right? Which is a real and literal, eternal consequence of our sin. The Bible speaks of hell very specifically and very clearly. Jesus spent much of his time in ministry speaking of this reality of hell. And yes, when we speak of salvation, it is to be saved from that eternal consequence of our sin, eternal death. But salvation is even more than that. Salvation is about not only being saved from something, it's about being saved to something. A life changed and transformed by the power of God. A life lived differently because of Jesus. Romans 8 puts it this way in verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the purpose of the Christian life, to be conformed to the image of his Son, to, to seek to become more... Christ-like, when we talked of baptism in Matthew 28, it's what Jesus was speaking of, that you were to go and to make disciples and to baptize them, right, that they would declare their faith in him, but it doesn't stop there. The mission and purpose of the church is to not only baptize as confession and salvation, but also to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's transformation. That's behavior that is lived according to the truth that God has entrusted to us. And so when we think of the word church, what ought to come to mind and what is true of the church, regardless of location or of generation, is that is we are a people of transformation, of change. One of the phrases that we've used over the years here, not, not a lot, but at times perhaps you've heard me reference this phrase, that we are to be a place where people can come as you are. Come. Whatever your circumstance in life, come. And as you come and as you hear the truth that God has entrusted to us, what it also is to happen is that you expect to change. It's part of our expectation here. 
that people will grow in Christ's likeness, that this being conformed to the image of his son, this will be literal and happening in your life. Come as you are, expect to change. All of us need that. The church is a people of transformation. You may have noticed uh, a few months back these little A-frame signs that we put at the entrances and exits of our drives, one to welcome people and help give direction when they come on the property. But if you haven't noticed yet, look on your way out today, and as you exit, what you'll see we put on the back of that sign is, Have a great week living like Jesus. That was very purposeful. Because that's the pursuit. Our definition of a disciple, years ago, as our elders looked, examined the word to like, what is a disciple? What could we like put together as kind of a succinct way as we examine the scriptures? What is a disciple? If we're to be disciples, who make disciples, and we need to know what a disciple is. So just so we all know, here's what we're chasing after in our endeavor here is to, to grow people who are followers of Christ, right? A disciple is a Christ follower who loves others and pursues living like Jesus. That's our definition. You'll see it on our journey wheel out here if you stop and look. A Christ follower who loves others, because that's a distinctive trait of a follower of Christ, and who pursues living like Jesus. The church, we are a people of transformation. Number three, the church is a family. The church is a family, individuals connected by strong relational bonds. Paul says in his encouragement to Timothy, I'm writing to you, so you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Did you catch the imagery that Paul draws upon there? The household of God, the familial identity. Now, we know an earthly family, right? We know the bonds of an earthly family. We know the pain that there is when the bonds of that earthly family are broken. And so we get that. And as the church, we realize, man, the Scripture uses these metaphors and images to help us understand. Like, because as we live life, we can go, oh, okay, I can understand that spiritual truth that is being taught because I can, I can identify with this, this metaphor, this image that is being used, the household of God. We are not only the people of God disconnected and kind of disjointed, we are the family of God. The Scripture uses uh, terms to describe us as family. God is our Father. We are sons and daughters, right? We are brothers and sisters. The familial terminology that is used in the Scripture helps us to know, like, man, we are to have this, this bond of relationship that is connected together in Christ. Families have strong bonds of love, even in their differences, Right? And beyond the bond of blood relation, we, are, we have the bond of Christ relation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we try to emphasize that. You hear us talk about our church family. You hear us at times reference, if you will, what we call our announcement time. We actually refer to it as family time. Why is that? Well, it's not just 
something we do. It's because we, we want to communicate. We believe we are a family together in Christ. And those opportunities we share with you during that, they're more than just announcements. Those are ways for us of connecting together as family, ways to serve others and one another as family, the ways of expressions of our love together as family, opportunities to grow together in our knowledge that leads to transformation together as family. Church is a family with our Heavenly Father overseeing His household. A fourth truth about the church is that the church is a people of conviction. When you think of the church, you are to think of people of conviction. What do I mean? Well, Paul says here that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, the metaphors and images used in the scriptures are used with Wonderful intention. We know what a pillar is. A pillar is a support structure, right? It holds the weight of a roof. Without the pillar, the the roof would eventually implode on itself. It would eventually fall. The church is a pillar. Now, as we think about the particular context of Ephesus that Timothy was in, Paul's writing, like Paul would have understood, like, okay, these Ephesians, they're going to know exactly what a pillar is. Remember, we, we started our study of this, mentioning that the, the, the temple of Diana, of Artemis, is at the center of kind of the city of Ephesus, and it was this magnificent, so much so it's called one of the seven wonders of the world, right? This temple was amazing, had 127 massive 60-foot pillars that supported the, the marble roof, and it was just an amazing structure. So when, when Paul says to Timothy, and when Timothy would share like, hey, the church is is the pillar and buttress of like, they would have thought, oh, we know what a pillar is. (laughs) You know what a pillar is, right? Not only that, but we've witnessed it in, in, you know, our own capital with the Capitol building and so on, the majestic beauty of the, of the pillars that support the church. You know what that is? And that's, that's a beautiful image of the church. And not only a pillar, but a buttress, a further support structure, right? Stabilizing walls and the building and a foundational structure that brings strength. So these two things, Paul says, this is the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is to therefore firmly hold the foundation of truth, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, so that the church does not collapse under the weight of false teaching. We are the pillars. We are to boldly display the beauty and majesty of the truth of God. I love what John Stott says in his commentary here on 1 Timothy. He says that the church is to hold the truth firm is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel. The church is called to both of these ministries. To hold it firm and to hold it high. The pillar and buttress of the truth. Now the church, right, that's us. Those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are entrusted with this message of God. It's a culturally transcendent truth. Meaning the truth is relevant, instructive, and practical for any culture at any time. It's timeless. It's changeless. It is eternal truth. I love the opportunities I've had to travel the globe and be in many different parts of the world. And what fascinates me every time I go somewhere and get to spend opportunity with the church, with our brothers and sisters, is that what unites us together is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
They speak a different language. They live in, in at times, they live in, in very different ways. But what unites us is the truth. And we've been entrusted with it. And it should, that truth is not just news for today's headlines, right? By the way, pray for Israel. Amen. But this truth is not just for today's headlines, here today and gone tomorrow. But it's news that spans the ages and is for every person of every nation. And when we read news and when we think about what's happening around the globe, hopefully as you process all of that, what what gives you a sure foundation of your life is to acknowledge the truth of the gospel, a truth that, that is present through the power of God for every age. So therefore, the truth of the church is personal, it's for every person, and it is uniquely universal. What I mean by that is this, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ describes a universal need. Places like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all there means all, every person. So we describe it and it means that, that we are born with a sin nature, the Bible teaches us. You are born a sinner, right? You don't sin and become a sinner. You, are, you sin because you are born a sinner. The Word of God tells us we have all sinned and fall short of the glory. All of us have a need, a desperate need for Jesus as Savior. But the Bible also describes this gospel that is a universal answer. John 3.16, for example, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever... Right, say that word. Whoever, right, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this universal answer is not does not mean that we are not universalist, which means, well, God will just save everybody. But what it means is, is that by grace, through faith, when someone confesses their belief in Jesus, just as we saw today, that this truth of the gospel, this grace oriented, mercy-driven truth, right, will, will it, it, it change their life. Salvation is available to anyone who believes. And so a holy, righteous, this astounds me, by the way, as I, as I draw our attention to this reality of this truth, is that a holy, righteous, perfect God has entrusted his message of truth to a sinful, broken people. God is committed to working in and through the church. And friend, that is his grace. And the way he established it from the beginning, God's heart has always been to relate with his creation, with humanity, male and female, created in his image. God's desire has always been. And, and, and when sin broke that relationship, God still said, no, I'm going to remain committed to relating with my image bearers. And that is an incredible truth. And to realize what God has done is he said, here, here's my truth. I entrust it to you. And what a humbling, sobering reality that is. That God has entrusted us the, the very truth that represents who he is. That's amazing. And so we know and understand, believe that we need to remain committed to 
doctrinal and theological training. It is essential and critical. Doing the hard work of studying the Word of God. I love, uh, I have a couple in our church who had the opportunity to marry a few months ago and they came to me after the wedding, and we had talked about this a bit in our premarital counseling. They came to me after the wedding, and they're like, hey, we need you to help us. We want to find a, a Bible school, a Bible college, where we can either in person or, or take some classes online. We want, to, we want to, like, go deeper in our understanding of theology. And, boy, that just excited me. Like, okay, let's talk about that, right? And, and we need to remain committed to the understanding of the importance and significance of doctrinal and theological training. Why? Because this is a truth. This isn't just something we hold lightly. This is a truth that we've been entrusted with that through the ages, right, since the foundation of the, of the apostles and prophets. Like that, that, that this is a truth that, that has been passed down from generation to generation. Now we hold. We can't take that lightly. Second Timothy 2, in the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, it speaks of it this way. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Right? So be careful of what you talk about as the church, what you pay attention to. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's hard work. It takes effort. It means we have to invest ourselves to understand it well. And people have a hard time sometimes with this reality that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth, right? Sometimes people struggle with that. Why do they struggle with it? Well, because, again, they witness the fact that we're a sinful and broken people, and sometimes that shows itself. And so, you know, one of the primary uh, things people state is resistance to the church as well as just full of hypocrites. We're people redeemed and saved by God's grace, right? Not perfect individuals. Yes, sometimes that sin shows itself among us, and sometimes we don't do the greatest job with this or that, and, and that's part of the reality, but that doesn't mean we can't seek and, and, and pursue the effort of holding the truth well, right? Sometimes it's like, well, churches believe different things. How can we trust what one says over another? And all I can say to you in that is, listen, it goes back to what is the hard work and the effort of understanding the word of God. And as we seek to understand it, we, we live accordingly with it. And yes, we have a difference of opinion with other churches or, or those who would label themselves as churches, right? Don't forget, some who label themselves as a church have nothing to do with, with, with being the people of God, Okay? We need careful discernment there. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, like we're, we're united on the gospel, but we do things a bit differently, and so we discern well and all this. So, so sometimes a bit of that is like, that's what keeps people like questioning, how can the church be the bit like, listen, friend, God is, entr-, and that's what I'm saying. It's so amazing to think that God Almighty, perfect, holy, righteous, just, has entrusted to you and me, broken people, imperfect people, he's entrusted to us with his, his truth. And we can't take that lightly. We have to, we have to, 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 to take that very seriously. A last point here about the truth is that the church, or about the church, is that the church is a people of confession. The church is a people of confession. Paul says to Timothy, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. The word confession Again, the Greek word there means to, to tell something similar or in a like way. 
something undeniable. It's certain because it's the same story. That's the power of any eyewitness account, isn't it? What do police look for in any investigation? Is Do these eyewitnesses, those who say they witnesses, what are the parts of their story that matter? What's the consistent telling of the story that, that helps us understand what really happened here? And that's what this word is describing, is that through the ages, through the generation, in other words, this, this thing that we hold that's entrusted to us today right, is a story that has been told from generation to generation. We don't just do this on our own. We don't, we don't you know, think of, of doctrine and theology in a way that, that is disconnected from what is the historical aspect of it and just think, well, God's doing something different today. Right? We're, we're connected as the people of God through the ages in community. And so we realize there's a story that is being told. There's a confession that has been established. And it is the mystery of godliness. The word mystery here is a bit confusing perhaps in our English translation because when we think of mystery, we think of something that is hidden. The, the Greek idea here is something that was hidden and it is only revealed because God has revealed it. The mystery of godliness. Something we would have not, listen, something we would have never figured out on our own because we don't have the ability to see things as God sees them. And so the confession here, the mystery, is what God has revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul goes on to say here, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. All of those are very personal, meaning there's statements about Jesus. God has revealed himself. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. John chapter 1, right? The, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This vindication, of course, is meaning that you're, you're act, it's the action of clearing someone of blame or suspicion, right? The proof that someone is right. And so vindicated by the Spirit, so look at the life of Jesus. Man, you know, he was conceived of by the Holy Spirit. In his baptism, the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove. And, and God said from heaven, like, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We know he was empowered by the Spirit in the wilderness, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was raised by the power of the Spirit of God. So his whole life was in a sense vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. We're getting heading into Christmas time, right? What are we going to talk about? The, the declaration of the angels, right? That Jesus has been born. In the wilderness again, ministered to by the angels. Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the resurrection and so on. Like the, the, There's a presence of the angelic presence here. Proclaimed among the nations, he says. What did, what did Jesus Tell us before he said that you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we've seen through the years, the proclamation of the gospel has gone into all the world. Still amazes me, though. Still amazes me that there are people groups. I don't know what the number is off the top of my head at the moment. It still amazes me there's people groups around the world who do not have a translation of the scriptures in their own dialect or their own tongue. Isn't that amazing? We, we have how many copies of the Bible, right, sitting in our brain? And there are some around the world who don't have a single copy of the Bible in their own language. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. People all around the globe, as I mentioned, joining together under the same confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
and taken up in glory. The ascension. Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. If you want to take time to go there, you can. But the angelic proclamation was, as you've seen him, right? He will come in the same way as you have seen him go. And that's where we're at. We're in the age of the church, and we await the coming of our Savior, his return. Amen? And what a glorious day that's going to be. And by the way, it might be today. It might be today. And we want to be found faithful. We want to be a people who, as Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. God is faithful. Right? God is faithful. And may we be strengthened by the Spirit of God to be faithful in return with the truth that he has entrusted to us. I'm going to pray for us, and then our worship team is going to come and lead us in a song to finish. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what Paul reveals to us here. We thank you for the testimony of baptism today that holds high this truth that we have been entrusted with. We thank you for the fact you've given to us your written word. What a blessing it is. I pray we never take for granted the fact that we have your word in our very hands. And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who perhaps don't have a copy of their own. Lord, may, may you do a work in a way, Lord, where you provide for them your word. Keep them strong in truth. We pray for those who don't yet know Jesus and, and maybe who have never even heard of him because they don't have a copy of the scriptures in their own dialect or language. Lord, we pray that your word would continue to go forth. But as we acknowledge here, we have your word. You've entrusted to us a, a broken, sinful, redeemed people by your grace, Lord. Help us to hold it well as a pillar. May we hold it high for others to see the beauty and majesty of your glory. As a buttress, may we be grounded. May we not compromise strengthen us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.